0: Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we want to be so thankful, we are thankful, we want to be more thankful that you would give your life that we might live. That is the heart of the wonderful message of the entire Bible, the wonderful message of God himself, the wonderful reality of Jesus, that he would give his life so we might live. And so I, I want to praise you and thank you for that and ask that you might help us this morning either to learn that for the very first time, and what it means to trust you, and for others of us to learn what it means to give our life in response to that. That because you have done this for us, there are certain ways we can and should be delighted to respond in. So teach us, I pray, and help us to follow you more fully and worship you more completely. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. <clears throat> Excuse me, and if you'd be kind enough to find a Bible, I'd be thrilled if you would open it back up to those couple of sentences in Hebrews chapter 12. So it's Hebrews chapter 12, sentences 28 and 29, and it's on page 1211. I'm going to read it again, but first let me ask you a question What does acceptable worship look like? Not acceptable to me or the person sitting next to you or behind you, but acceptable to God. What does acceptable worship actually look like? Let me read the couple of sentences with that question in mind, sentence 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Did you see in the middle of those couple of sentences that little phrase, so worship God acceptably? When I first read this a few months ago, really, when I was beginning to prepare this series of talks, I was really struck by that phrase, worship God acceptably, because it assumes there is a way to worship that God will not accept. It assumes that there is a way to present ourselves before God, which has all the trappings and all the external signs of being true worship and for God to reject it. And then in in God's providence, in the way God works, providence simply means things unplanned by us but steered by God. In God's providence, as I'm reading through Hebrews a few months ago, getting these talks ready and doing some prep, I'm also reading in my own personal studies, Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 15, sentence 8 and 9, you don't need to look it up, I'll read it to you. This is what Jesus says, they parallel. In Hebrews, it's a way of worshipping that must be acceptable. The risk is it's not. And then in Matthew, this is what Jesus says. These people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. These people, Jesus actually is quoting from a place called Isaiah, and he's bringing that ancient word and making it relevant today. And he says, Look, you, you can be people who can honor me with your lips, but your hearts can be so far from me. And you worship me in vain, if that's the situation. That little word, vain, if you look it up, that word, vain, in the original language that Jesus is speaking or quoting from, Hebrew, it is that empty feeling in your gut after you've vomited it empty. Do you know that feeling? It's the feeling when you just got that hollow, horrid emptiness deep in your gut Because the food poisoning bug has just projectile vomited it empty. I mean, it's graphic language. Jesus is saying that there is a way to worship that has all the outward trappings, that looks to anyone else watching, like it is true and right, and yet it makes God vomit in disgust. Like that horrid vomit. Vomit. That's what that word vain means. Isn't that striking? That it can look so right and yet be so, so wrong. And it's because there is such a thing as empty honour. Jesus says these people, or there is a way for people to honour me with their lips. But their hearts be far from me. Empty honour. And friends, actually, we know what empty honour is like. Let me give you two illustrations because this is this is we know what this is like. Uh, can you imagine in the workplace, a retirement bash? Someone who's worked there for thirty years, and they were the kind of lady that everyone loved as a colleague, worked so well with anybody, fantastic team member. Though she lion managed always found a fair, developing them in their abilities, always reaching out to them to help. The kind of co-worker who actually knew a little bit of your life outside the office door and genuinely seemed to care about it. Can you imagine her retirement bash? The handshakes, the speeches made in her honour, the beautiful words written in cards given to her. There's words with honour there, isn't there? Now imagine a year later... There's another retirement bash. For another guy who's worked there for 30 years, this is old Grumbleful. No one wanted to work with old Grumbleful. He was so unreliable. He was the guy who clocked out at five on the dot, never doing that little bit extra and if the team he was in failed to reach—some of you know an old grumbleful—I can tell. If the team he was part of failed to reach its quota, well, he always had excuses about why it was someone else's fault. Do you know that kind of person? Now imagine his retirement bash: same handshakes, same speeches, same notes in cards—empty of honour, empty of honour going through the motions but lacking any real heart. That's what Jesus, when it comes to worship, says God spews out in disgust, vomits away from him. Let me give you another example because I'm about to move into this season where this will be my life for the next few weeks, right? If you've got kids or grandkids, it's Christmas fair time. It's Christmas assembly time, isn't it? Yeah? and you go and watch your loved little one on the stage with 30 or 60 other kids, and they all have a solo or a part to play, don't they? There's a 100-odd adults watching these lovely little cherubs do... And they're terrible, aren't they? Let's just be honest. They're absolutely horrendous. I mean, they sing worse than me, and that's about as bad as it gets, right? But you know that when one of these little cherubs, these little kids, stands up and sings their little recital bit like this, that in the room, there'll be one couple going, yes, woo, 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 yeah? And the rest of the room just, yeah? It's admiration with no honour. It's empty praise, yeah? Jesus here says, look, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Actually, what Jesus is looking for, and we'll see it in Hebrews in a minute, which is where we are going to go back to, what Hebrews is helping us understand is Jesus is looking for worship which comes from the heart. That is not simply the external trappings of being able to present with your lips or your body, an image which looks like it's worshipping, but a heart which is given entirely to Jesus in its fullness. And when the Bible here, Jesus, or anywhere in the Bible, when the Bible uses the word heart, it doesn't just mean our emotions. This is not talking about passion that is loud or exuberant, nor is it talking about reflectiveness that is quiet and deep. This is not about personality types of a reflected Ryan or a traditional Teresa or a modern Michael or whatever it might be. This is not personality or passion. The Bible doesn't mean our emotions when it says heart. It means the entirety of who we are. Imagine you're walking across Victoria Park and over in a far corner you see a young couple on a park bench. It's a nice summer day, early spring, and it's, it's beautiful and bright. And there they are on the park bench. And you hardly notice them until you see the chap stand up and go down on one knee in front of the young girl. Now, you're a deep romantic at heart, so you scurry across the park to try and at least catch some of the words he's saying. And all you hear as the wind catches his breath is his words, I give you my heart. Now, what do you imagine he's going to do at that moment? Do you think he's going to take his fist and drive it through his sternum and tear out that pulsating lump of flesh and say, with his last breath, my heart? Yeah, of course we don't. But nor do we think he only means his feelings, do we? We know in that moment when he says, I give you my heart, he means the entirety of who I am. Everything that makes me the person I am, I give it to you to love you, to serve you, to lead you, to protect you. You have it all, everything. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's looking for worship that is the giving of the entirety of who we are. Is not simply lip service, but is every iota and atom that we are given to him. In worship. In Hebrew's language, that is what it means to worship acceptably. That is what it means when it calls us here. And if you've got Hebrews, let's look back down at it. That's what it means when he says, look, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, since God has done everything required to win you to himself, and since what he has done cannot be shaken or taken away from you, Since God has done it all, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Because of what Jesus has done. And friends, it's worth noting that God always initiates. It's always God who initiates. He made the world and we respond in obedience to him. He created the nation of Israel, and Israel responded to him. He sent Jesus into our altar. God always initiates. We always respond. Since we have received the kingdom that he has given us, let us now worship acceptably, wholeheartedly. Now, what we have in Hebrews, these couple of sentences, is the four characteristics of heart-giving, honour-finding, acceptable worship. The four characteristics of what it means to worship God in such a way that he doesn't vomit it out, but accepts it. Worship that is appropriate. What we're going to do is, I'm going to look at each four of these, and at the end of that, I'm going to ask you to think about which one or ones do you particularly need to invest time in to develop and expand. I'm not going to ask you to talk to each other, much to the relief of some of you, not this morning. But what I'm going to ask you to do at the end of the sermon is by a show of hands, identify the areas you want to develop. Now, that's not for my benefit. I'm not going to be taking names or a register or anything like that. There's enough of us in this room that we won't really notice who's putting their hand up when. This is for your benefit, that you hear from God and put into practice what you've heard. There's four of them. And at the end, I'm going to say, which one or ones do you want to consciously work at and signal that with a show of hands? Okay? Yeah? Let's have a look at the first one then. The first one in Hebrews here is that acceptable worship is whole of life and not just certain segments. Let me read the whole couple of sentences again to get it clear in our heads. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, you might well say, well, Alex, where from that do you get the idea that acceptable worship is whole of life, every part of life, and not just certain segments? Well, the answer is actually in the word that is translated here, worship. Do you see that there? So, worship uh, God acceptably. Now, that word worship in the original is never a word that means our singing. Now, when the Bible wants to instruct us about how we sing in church, the Bible uses the word singing. There's a lot of passages in the Bible about the way we should sing. It doesn't pretend to call it something else. It calls it singing. When the Bible uses the word worship here, it means active service. It means all of life given in celebration of who God is. Let me give you a a cross-reference that makes that clearer. Uh, Again, I'll read it to you. You don't need to look it up. But in a place, Romans 12, sentence 1 and 2, it says this. So listen carefully and see how worship is attached to all of life. Not just one particular arena or segment or place, but all of life. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. This is your reasonable act of worship. Reasonable act of worship. Let me say it again. What is a reasonable act of worship? Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. To offer your bodies. He means our physical bodies, our flesh and our bone. Why does he say that? Because you cannot go anywhere and your body not be there. Can you? You cannot go anywhere and your body not be there. And so wherever your body is, that is the reasonable place to worship. Wherever you are, at work, at home, changing nappies, driving a taxi in an argument with the wife, in tears because of distress, trying to make the financial ends meet. These are all arenas in which we are to worship God. And if God only sees us worshipping on a Sunday morning in song, he vomits that out. He will not accept the hypocritical life that worships with gusto on Sunday and refuses to live it out in the rest of the week in the everyday living that you are called to do. Now, if you're still not convinced, have a look again in Hebrews. Because this acceptable worship at the very end of what we call chapter 12 cascades through the false barrier of chapter 13. Chapters and verses were put into our Bible much later on to help us navigate And sometimes they mean we lose sight of the natural connection. So actually, the beginning of chapter 13, as we know it, is simply the places where worship is acceptable. Would you have a look at the beginning of chapter 13? Where are these arenas that we are meant to worship? Look at sentence one of chapter 13. Arena number one we worship is as we love one another, brothers and sisters. It's how we relate to the people around us, loving them as if they were family. That's worship. Arena number two, sentence two, show hospitality to strangers. So how we step into the space between us and other people and welcome them so they do not remain strangers but become friends. That's worship, opening up your heart and your home to strangers. Arena number three, consider those in prison. Arena number three, remarkably, is how we love and relate to people who are convicted criminals. Perhaps their crimes disgust us. And yet, treating them well and with grace and kindness is an arena of worship. You see how those relationships get further away as such. Brothers and sisters, strangers, criminals. Arenas for worship. And then what comes next? What's the next arena for worship? Sentence for sex. Your sex drive. And whether you use it positively or destructively. How do you use your sexual body? Is an arena for worship? What's after that? Sentence five, money. How you spend your money. Your wisdom, your generosity, your discretion of your money. What's the next one? Uh, sentence six, power and leadership and obedience. Sex, money and power. And on the list goes and on the list goes. The first point, and the question I'm asking is, is this an area you need to develop, is that acceptable worship, worship that God longs to see, which is appropriate to what he has done for us, is whole of life and not just certain segments. It's not limited to when you're with your small group on a Monday night or singing songs on Sunday morning or or praying in a devotional time that you might set aside each day. It's not limited to those moments, but it's every nook and cranny, every part of life. It's why Jesus famously says in Mark 12, verse 30, he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, and all of your soul. Not part of who you are, not only 50% of your strength, but all of everything in love for God. I give you my heart. So is that the first area that you need to develop? A mindset that says all moments of living our worship moments. What's number two? It won't take us quite as long, two, three, and four. What's number two? Number two is acceptable worship is thankful, is thankful. Look at sentence 28 again. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Now, I don't think this thankfulness is just a general or generic thankfulness for the good things that exist in our life. Though that's right and proper, I don't think that's what this is about. I think this is explicitly we're thankful for Jesus' death. All the teaching up until this moment, everything that has come before this in the book of Hebrews, is about how important and how wonderful Jesus' death for us is. I've introduced us over the last couple of weeks to two big words to help us understand that through Hebrews. Word number one, propitiation, a new word for some of us. And word number two, pardon, pardon. That because Jesus propitiated God, appeased God's anger, because Jesus satisfied the anger of God and exhausted that rightful anger, that's what propitiation means, God can now issue a pardon to us. Propitiation means a pardon. That's what this thankfulness is about. A regular, often conscious pausing, and not simply thanking God for the nice, good stuff he's put into your life, which I hope you do, but thanking God for Jesus and his death on the cross and what that means for you. Just pull in for a brain break for a moment and let me uh, illustrate this a little bit, or at least give you an example of how this works out in my life. If I'm talking personally, this is what works for me. Uh, what I found and what I'm really grateful for is our worship leaders instinctively choose songs that point to Jesus' death on the cross. They do it very, very well, and we should be very thankful for it. And so what I've started to do, because i found myself drifting away from focusing on Jesus' cross and being thankful for all sorts of other things, a wife and children and a home and health and all the rest of it, but not necessarily going, and Jesus, your death. And so what I've started to do is each Sunday, I select a song, that was sung in the morning. And I use that each morning of the week to start my day, that same song for a week. I sing to it, I play to it, as in I listen to it, play to me, I play it back, you know what I mean, yeah? Reflect on it. I'll often write down all the lyrics and use it as prayers. And then the next week it's a new song. The week after that it's a new song. To help me each day to be reminded of what Jesus has done for me and be thankful for it. So, is that an area you want to develop? Being thankful for the cross of Jesus as acceptable worship. Number three of the four. So we've had that acceptable worship is whole of life. Secondly, that it's cross-thankful. Thirdly, that it's awe-generating, not flippant or trivial. That it generates a a sense of the enormity and magnitude of who Jesus is and leaves us in awe and reverence about that. Look again at sentence 28, if you would, with me. It says, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Of course, Jesus is a servant who loves us. He's the Lamb of God who dies for us. He describes himself, John 15, 15. I am your friend as a friend who's closer than a brother. Of course, there are these images of Jesus which are... Incredibly intimate and close and casual. And yet if that is the only Jesus we see, we do not see Jesus at all. Jesus is also the lion who roars in absolute fury at the sin he sees in the world. He's not just the servant, but he's the king who rules in absolute power. He's not just the lamb who died on the cross, but he is also the one who rides back into his world on a battle stallion with a broadsword in one hand and a battle axe in the other. And we're told in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we only see the close friend, brother Jesus and do not see the magnitude that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one to whom everyone will bow in adoration and praise, then we see no Jesus at all. And therefore we need to cultivate this reverence and awe, this sense of the magnitude of Jesus if our worship is to be acceptable. I was hugely struck by someone telling me a story of their own life about a year or so ago, where they used to say that the only time, and they used to celebrate this, but the only time each day they had to spend with God, where they weren't with other people, was on the commute to work. And they used to listen to a worship CD and say their prayers as they kind of drove to work, sometimes interrupted by those early work calls. And he told me he became deeply convicted that that was such a disrespectful way to treat God. That he was not setting aside focused, purposeful time to reflect on the enormity of God, but simply slotting God into the wasted space. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I'm not against at all redeeming commute times. I think his point is, if that's the only kind of time you have before God, you are treating him very disrespectfully as only your friend and only your brother and not also your king and your lord and your God. Is that an area you need to develop? And then lastly and finally, the last characteristic of acceptable worship is that it is not shared or lent. It is either all or it is nothing at all. Look at the last sentence, sentence 29. Most of it is a quote from a place called Deuteronomy. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now they've missed off the last part of the quote because the original hearers would have known it off by heart. It was a very famous passage for them and the children, still Jewish children today, are required to learn it off by heart. So they would have known what else comes. Let me add the bits that, bit that's missing. It says, for our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The consuming fire is an illustration that God is jealous to have all of us and not just some of us. Like a wife who rejects the offer of just part of her husband's love. It is right for a wife to reject the offer of only part of her husband's life, uh, love. Just like if that young man on his knee had said to his potential bride-to-be, I offer you most of my bank account, some of my body, and a third of my emotions. But that lady over there is going to get some of my emotions. Yeah? It is right for that woman to reject the offer of just part of a man's love. And so God rejects the offer of only part of our heart. If it is not all that we are, it is none of what we are. It is either all or it is nothing. Now God, in his grace, he longs for us to make that journey. And he leaves ample time for us to give our, our all to him. It's one of the reasons why we're given 60, 70, 80 years of life, generally. So we have all that time to truly understand that he's trustworthy and we can give it all to him. But he will not accept it unless it is all. I spoke to a lady just a couple of weeks ago who's going back and forth and back and forth about whether she can or can't or can or can't trust Jesus. And the nub of the matter is that she has placed her children on the altar of her praise. Her children are so important to her that they are an idol she worships. And her battle is her children have a wrong part of her heart that should go to God and God alone. And she's giving them to her children, horrendously bad for her children, and the kind of worship that God rejects. Another very good friend of mine who's from a Hindu religious background, a strict Hindu background, we're in conversation about whether it is possible for him to worship Jesus and continue worshipping his Hindu gods. And his Hindu counsellor is saying yes, and I am saying no, no. Just like your wife would not accept your offer of love if it was only part love. He's a jealous God. It's why he's often called, including in the Deuteronomy 4 passage this is quoted for, he's often called in the Bible a husband. Jealous for his wife and all of his wife's love and attention. And he will not share his wife with anyone. He will not. So where is the development point for you? To worship God not just with our lips but with all of our hearts. To not have a life of worship that is vain, that God pukes and vomits out. Where do you want to develop? Let me remind you of the four, and then we're going to do this little show of hands to help you to have to think about it and think about what are you going to do next week. So the first one was that actually acceptable worship is all of life. It's not contained just on Sunday. It's every nook and cranny, every aspect of living. Work, play, leisure, money, sex, leadership, power, the whole spectrum of who you are. Is it a development point number two, a thankfulness specifically for Jesus' death and how you make that the centre point of your praise? Is it number three, a recognition that awe and reverence needs to be an element of your praise of Jesus and your living for Jesus? And if you only see him as friend and brother, you do not see him at all because he's also king and lord. Or is it number three, that you cannot share your heart? You cannot share your heart. It is either all for God or not at all for God. There is no middle ground, no percentages. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. So let's be honest with ourselves. Who is at a development point about the whole of life? That we limit worship too much, brilliant, too much into just moments and we need to give all our life, fantastic, brilliant. Who is it that it's about being thankful for the cross, particularly? Like, you have thankful for things generally, but you need to remind yourself of Jesus' death as the central point. Fantastic. Who is it about that flippancy and triviality, and actually, we need to see God more in his enormity and magnificence and brilliance? Fantastic. And who is it that whole idea that we are sharing our heart between God and something else? That, that, well, that's a lot of us. That's a lot of us. That is a lot of us, eh? He wants it all. Can I just say from my experience, he is so trustworthy. He is so trustworthy. If you've been let down by a human father, or a human husband, or a human friend, you'll be rightfully hesitant about your heavenly father, and your heavenly husband, and your heavenly friend. 21 years I've been following Jesus as a single boy as a young couple, as a exhausted parent in London in Shanghai, in Taipei, in Hong Kong, in Aylesbury, in Stafford and he's never let me down shall I pray for us Jesus we thank you that your kingdom is unshakable We thank you that trust in you is entirely lost.